Hello and welcome to the Cut in the Dry here on TLG Radio. Uh, we're back again, and when I say we, I mean me, doing another solo run this week, discussing uh, part two of money in our Understanding the Time series. So this is just yet another preface to a, a continued discussion that we'll be having on this show about finance and, and what on earth is going on with it in today's world. And, and particularly in the United States of America. So in the last episode, we ran through the four, well, five kinds of money and, the, and kind of started delving into the ramifications of what our current system of fiat money means for, um, for you as an individual, for you as a business owner, as an employee, as an owner of a home, any of those types of things. We, we started discussing what fiat money means for that. And, and the bottom line is it means nothing, nothing good. Um, so today I'm going to delve into one of the, uh, one of the huge downsides to fiat money, which is inflation. Now inflation, uh, has an opposite called deflation. Neither of those neither of those things really exist apart from a valueless currency. There can be some fluctuation in the value of currency based on the nature of a free market. Um, but all in all, you have a very a very stable currency. When you have fiat money, that's not the case. There there are four main drivers for inflation, four main causes, four main uh, I guess you can call levers that the Federal Reserve and the federal government have that they can uh, adjust and tune to get the rate of inflation that they want. Now, when things get a little bit out of control, you see what's called hyperinflation. And, and you've seen this happen uh, in Germany just after World War II, in Venezuela, in Spain, in... Uh, any, any nation that has relied on fiat currency has eventually experienced hyperinflation. Hyperinflation uh, can be understood as when currency is inflating so quickly that the money you earn today is not worth anything tomorrow. And if you'll remember in, in the last episode, we discussed the fact that uh, having money is gambling in the sense that you're, you're betting, uh, if it's fiat money, you're simply making a bet that it's going to be worth something by the time you need to spend it on a down payment on a house, on a car, on food, on clothing, whatever it may be. By having money in your bank account, you are by nature a gambler because you're gambling on the future of that currency's value. And I would wager that that's a, that's a very risky gamble. So, um, the four main drivers for inflation. So I'll run through these and they're all, they're all tied together and none of these, none of these concepts are actually that confusing. So hopefully I don't make them sound confusing. I'll do my best. The first, 
main driver of inflation is lower industrial output. So when, for whatever reason, whether it be government regulation, a uh, lockdown mandated by the government, or vaccine mandates, or increased regulation of carbon output, or whatever the case may be, these types of things introduce uh, bindings, chains, shackles on the ability of a private company to produce. What that means is they either have higher costs um, to produce the same amount as they used to and thus prices go up. Um, Or let's say because of government regulation on carbon output, they have lower raw material supply. And so they're simply not able to produce as much. Um, And I already mentioned lockdowns and vaccine mandates and unhappy employees and strikes and all these kinds of things. There, There are any number of things that can lead to lower industrial output. And by that, I mean lumber production, metal forging, uh, any type of foundry work, uh, farming and agriculture, construction, anything that produces anything real and of value. When there is a lower output, there is relative to that more money available to purchase lesser goods which by nature requires uh, those goods to be worth more of whatever currency is available. Uh, so, so that's the first main driver, and I'll tie it into the others as we go along. Um, the obvious main driver behind inflation is a higher money supply. So, and, and I'll allude back to what we mentioned in the last episode, 3.7 trillion of the roughly 8 trillion dollars currently in circulation. Now this isn't counting bonds, mortgages, uh, stocks, etc. that are held in 401ks. Eight trillion dollars that is actively circulating in the economy. In the economy, almost half of that didn't exist a year and a half ago. So by all standard measures, people would be looking at that and thinking, wow, well why haven't we seen 45% inflation? Well, it's because of these other drivers, and I I would like to get to uh, what I think is holding inflation back, and I think there's actually only only one linchpin left in the dam, Um, and I'll get to that at the end of this. But, so we've got lower industrial output, which we are seeing currently in the marketplace, you know, lead times for any type of raw material that is then used to produce end products is way up. And so being in the industry of construction, you're dealing with ordering things three months ahead of time and hoping that they'll actually arrive at that point. Now this is concerning, of course, because it's demonstrating the fact that yes, we have a higher money supply and yes, we have low industrial output. So two of the main drivers, two of the four main drivers that I'm going to be discussing today are already in place for ridiculously high inflation. So the next linchpin, and this one is a little bit confusing, but it's, it is really important for how, how inflation works, and it, it ties into the first of, of low industrial output. And this is going to sound counterintuitive, but uh, 
low unemployment drives inflation higher. So when unemployment gets to the rate of one to one and a half percent, it's currently at 5.4%, down from nearly 15% at the beginning of the whole panic. Uh, when employment, the unemployment rate gets down to that level, what happens is everybody who wants a job has a job effectively. And so employers have to resort to stealing employees from other companies, something that I myself have been been forced to do in the past six months or so, even though the unemployment rate is at 5.5%, which is generally, uh, what that means is employers can pay less and thus their costs are lower and inflation is pushed down uh, towards a deflationary rate. So when unemployment is high, uh, companies are able to pay less, their costs are less, and prices are lower on the consumer price index, therefore inflation is pushed down. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky though, because employers are currently in the position where they're competing with the government. Um, and what I mean by that is unemployment benefits are so good that there are a, a, a significant number of employees in blue collar positions, particularly, that are making more money or equivalent money staying at home as they would if they went back to work. What this means is that there's low production because employees aren't going back to work. And so employers have to raise their pay rates in order to compete with the government who is paying people to not produce anything at all. And so what we're left with is we're left with a relatively high unemployment rate um, that still is driving employers' costs upwards because they're competing with the government paying for nothing. So the people who are at work are paying for people not being at work and those people are costing the companies they work for more money um, so that those people are incentivized to actually come to work rather than stay home and take a check from the government. And that all leads to higher prices for the end consumer. Um, so I hope I've made that clear. Uh, low unemployment drives inflation upwards. We're in the unfortunate position now where we have relatively high unemployment, but really, really good or really bad, depending on how you look at it, unemployment benefits, which means that employers are competing with the government for employees who have the option of either being paid to do nothing or being paid not much to work very hard. Um, and so, that's leading to a very competitive job market, a very, a very tough thing for inflation. So the final contributor to inflation is velocity of money. So velocity of money, simply put, is, is just the number of times any given dollar exchanges hands over any given period of time. So the velocity of money uh, if you look at a, at a graph from 
the Federal Reserve or any other data supplier, has been going down steadily over the last 30 years or so. Um, and it, it always spikes a little bit during each recession, but currently the velocity of money is at an all-time low. Uh, people are not spending their dollars. Um, and if they are spending their dollars, they're spending it on, on long-term assets rather than spending it uh, to purchase goods and services from someone who's going to spend that money again. Because if you're, let's say you're uh, going to the grocery store and you spend $25, well, that's going to go into that grocery store's bank account, then to its employees. Those employees will spend money on gas and food and rent and electricity. And you have a velocity of three just in that, just in that one, one transaction at the grocery store. Whereas if you are spending your money on a down payment on a house, there's very little mobility for that cash. The loan officer is going to take some portion of that and they'll spend it on their mortgage and their uh, utility bills and all of their expenses. And the, the bank will take a little bit, the title company will take a little bit, but most of that money just stops circulating. Most of the money that you put down on your house. And so there is no velocity for that money um, and if there is, it only, it only maybe will change hands one more time because any excess equity that the previous owner had, they'll probably roll into another property. And so it'll only exchange hands one more time after you've spent it. So all that this means is that the velocity of money is extremely low. It's at, uh, I believe 1.12 or 1.13, um, over the course of a year. So what that means is on average, every dollar in the U.S. economy exchanges hands less than one point, sorry, less than one and a quarter times per year. Um, and all that to say, the less currency that is being uh, distributed throughout the economy, the less upward momentum on inflation occurs. If currency is being held what that effectively means is that there are a lot of people betting that it's they're better off holding cash in their bank account rather than spending it on goods and services. And so they're, they're hoarding cash um, rather than distributing it into the economy. And this pushes inflation down. So um, all that to say, however, this is a very, very thin line holding us back from hyperinflation. There are, there are a few factors that I haven't discussed in this, in this little short overview of inflation, but um, there, what we are experiencing now is a high supply of money, low industrial output, and uh, low unemployment when you, when you look at it from an effective, an effective uh, unemployment rate. Because I'm counting the government's unemployment checks as an as an employer for my analysis of this, the only thing holding us back from crazy high inflation is the low velocity of money, and so all that it will take to spark hyperinflation is any reason for a large amount of people to start panicking. 
And as we've seen, it doesn't take much for people to start panicking. So once people start panicking and they start buying miscellaneous goods and services, namely toilet paper, uh, <laughs> this will increase the velocity of money. And I don't think there's anything else holding us back from ridiculously high inflation rates. Um, so with that, I wanted to keep this episode short because I'm talking about inflation and that's never a fun thing to talk about. So hopefully you were able to stick around for a whole 15 minutes. If not, I totally understand. Um, hop on the Discord. I love to chat with some people about inflation because it's it's a hard thing to monologue about because it it's making sense to me how I'm saying it, but I, I hope that's the case for everybody else. If not, hop on hop on Discord and shoot me a message. I'd love to chat through it more. And we will be back over the next few weeks to discuss money in our series on understanding the times further. Um, With that, I hope you've enjoyed what I've had to say, even though it was thoroughly boring this week. Um, Hope it sparks some research and interest on your end and you're able to um, learn more about how our financial system works. Um, For that, uh, with that, for... For this series, Understanding the Times in Money, for the cut and the dry on the life-given radio, this is Kip, signing off. Welcome back to Sanctifying Story on the life-given radio. I'm Ryan Ayers, and this is episode 9, September 15th on Something Wicked This Way Comes. Introduction It is noteworthy that Ray Bradbury is considered one of the best science fiction writers of the 20th century. It is also noteworthy that Ray Bradbury is barely a science fiction writer at all. In his own words, I don't write science fiction. I've only done one science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451, based on reality. Science fiction is a depiction of the real. Fantasy is a depiction of the unreal. So Martian Chronicles is not science fiction, it's fantasy. It couldn't happen, you see. That's the reason it's going to be around a long time. Because it's a Greek myth, and myths have staying power. So Bradbury is actually one of the best fantasy writers of the modern era, and one of his best American fantasies is the novel Something Wicked This Way Comes. In this book, Bradbury, despite his atheism, describes vice, virtue, and Christian joy, and therefore, like the Greek myths, Something Wicked This Way Comes has great staying power. Section 1. Plots, Tension, and Temptation Morality provides the book's central tension. Will Halloway and his father Charles love what is good. Cougar and Dark's Pandemonium Shadow Show, a carnival that has descended onto Will's town, loves and presents what is evil. And Will's friend, Jim Nightshade, true to his name, can't decide which he loves. The story follows Jim and Will's unveiling of the Shadow Show's diabolical machinations. Cougar and Dark are not peddling in cash dollars, but rather in the sin, fear, and death, and anguish of tortured souls. The carnival is like people, only more so. A man, a woman, rather than walk away from or kill each other, 
ride each other a lifetime, pulling hair, extracting fingernails, the pain of each to the other a narcotic that makes existence worth the day. So maybe the carnival survives, living off the poison of the sins we do to each other and the ferment of our most terrible regrets. Pages 203 and 204. Through the story, Will and Charles Holloway both discover and try to stop this evil feeding, while Jim is half-pulled to the menagerie of temptations the carnival offers. But the temptation that pulls at even Will and Will's dad, the temptation that binds all the carnival freaks and the hosts themselves to the carnival, the allurement that is the central problem of the novel is offered by the carousel. Even after all the carnival is dead and in ruins, spoilers, Jim, Will, and Will's dad stand in front of the free carousel. Just three times around, thought Will. Hey. Just four times around ahead, thought Jim. Boy. Just ten times around back, thought Charles Holloway. Lord. Page 289. You see, this carousel spins forward in time to make you older, taller, wiser, or it circles backward to make you fresh and young again. In other words, the carousel offers immortality to the rider. But Charles Holloway thought of the catch. Once you start, you'd always come back. One more ride and one more ride. And eventually, you'd offer rides to friends and family until finally, you wind up owner of the carousel, keeper of the freaks, proprietor for some small part of eternity of the traveling dark carnival show. Page 289. The carousel's temptation is how cougar and dark have sunk to their depth of evil. They succumb to the desire for control over their own life and are, therefore, ironically, hopelessly slaves to their vice, forever devouring souls. The carousel's temptation, too, is how the freaks came to be, their mashed physical bodies reflections of their mashed souls, chained to the carnival by the promise of becoming human again by means of the carousel. On the promise alone of being returned to normal old age, that train travels with the world, its sideshow populated with madmen waiting to be released from bondage, meantime servicing the carnival. Pages 206 and 207. And the carousel is how the carnival could get new recruits like Jim, Will, and Charles Holloway. So the book's themes are righteousness versus wickedness, as well as the vices of humanity and especially, according to Bradbury, our strongest temptation which all the characters so far have succumbed to, the desire for immortality. In the face of that temptation, however, Charles smashes the carousel. Section 2. Charles Smashes the Carousel Charles resists the temptation of immortality and fights against the wicked by laughter. Laughter tears the carnival apart, withers dark, disperses the freaks, crumbles the dust witch, and shatters the glass mirror. Laughter raises the dead. I believe there is much truth to this, but I also think because Bradbury is functionally an atheist, it's necessary to take a minute and sift the wheat from the chaff. Bradbury presents laughter as the solution, but for Bradbury, laughter comes from the fact that nothing matters. Somehow, irresistibly, the prime thing was, nothing mattered. Life was a prank of such size, you could only stand off in this corner and note its meaningless, meaningless length. Page 229. As the character Stubb states in Moby Dick, and on the first pages of this book, I know not all that may be coming, but be what it will, I'll go to it laughing. So life's meaninglessness, our inability to control life, should make us carefree. If you can't control life, then why bother trying? Why not laugh and not care about your life? This is the ideal that Bradbury gives his characters as the winning mentality. 
However, this ideal undermines his novel's morality and is simply not possible. Melville was much more honest with himself, and Stubb, at the end of Moby Dick, fails to hold to his own standard and fears for his life, all his laughter vaporized. Not caring about yourself is not possible, because humans are designed to care about themselves deeply. Just think of the command to love your neighbor as you do yourself. Loving yourself is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean you simply cannot will yourself to not care about your life. Eventually, like Stubb, something will come along, for instance your imminent and painful death, which will make you blanch. Bradbury's thesis Nothing Matters also undermines his novel's morality. For though he says nothing matters, Bradbury in this book seems to take the wickedness of evil and the righteousness of good very seriously. In fact, he has categories like good and evil, which implies a whole host of moral imperatives, an army of shoulds and shouldn'ts that we must obey. But if, as Charles and Bradbury maintain, morality is simply conventions all humans agree upon, like murder is wrong, then all the shoulds and shouldn'ts dissolve from commands into mere suggestions. Murder is wrong, says who? Who made you, a human on the same footing as me, the arbiter of morality? By what standard? Atheists like Christopher Hitchens attempt to give a standard by presenting the idea of common morals. Everyone naturally shares the same morals, like abstaining from murder, so we can all agree on a standard without God. But saying we all agree murder is wrong is like saying we all think doing bad things isn't good. Obviously, no one thinks murder isn't wrong. But the actual problem is that nobody agrees with everyone else on what murder is. Stalin thought eradicating an entire race wasn't murder. Some Americans currently consider killing animals as murder, and other Americans praise murdering infants in their mother's womb. Stalin, Margaret Sanger, and your vegetarian neighbor all agree murder is wrong, but with three such radically different takes on what murder is, a unified standard to measure murder by is entirely absent. Taking one thing with another, human history can't agree entirely on anything, and until we do, morality is just whatever goes. But no. This is a brief summary of a huge and complicated topic. If you'd like to get a more thorough explanation of the argument than a 200-word paragraph, I suggest the film debate between Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens titled Collision. And I cannot recommend strong enough Dr. Stokes' brilliant and very thorough book How to Be an Atheist. A must-read for sure. End of footnote. The failure of Bradbury's reason for laughter both practically and ethically comes to a head at the end of the book. Warning, major spoilers here. To raise his friend Jim from the dead, Will and his father have to forget entirely about Jim. Where was Jim? Jim was forgotten. Page 284. But this is problematic. Not only does it seem on a practical level impossible, it also seems unethical. Could a way of life that has no room for sorrow, even for the death of your dearest ones, have any compassion for anyone else? If someone else is suffering, it seems the only thing one is allowed to do, according to Bradbury, is laugh, which is far from Jesus' lamenting Lazarus' death, or Paul's exhortation to comfort each other, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Bradbury's reason for laughter is neither possible nor moral and ends up thwarting the climax of a novel and turning victory and joy into a strangely introspective denial of reality. Conclusion So Bradbury's reasoning is off, but the story he tells, with laughter as the great weapon, is bang on. Consider Ezra's statement, The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
Nehemiah 8.10, or Paul's exhortation to rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, or Solomon's quip, He who has a merry heart has a continual feast, Proverbs 15.15, or Jesus' declaration, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, John 15.10-11. Only the Christian can be truly carefree, not because we don't care about our lives or others, we do very much care about both, but because, but because our lives have been given into someone else's keeping, and we don't have to worry about it. This allows us to be truly carefree because of the kind of person our lives are given to. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And later, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 32, 38, and 39. Christians' lives have been given to the kind of God who is not only sovereign in all things, and has not only predestined before the foundation of the world what will come to pass according to his will, but he is a God who loves his people. So much so, he killed his only son to save his people. And so absolutely nothing can take our lives from him, and nothing can remove us from, and nothing can remove from us the genuine immortality and sincere joy set before us in this life and once we die. To live as a Christian, then, is to have a continual feast. To die as a Christian, then, is gain. And thus death and all the devil's varied offers of pleasure and faux immortality have lost their sting. Here, then, is why Bradbury's story, despite his explicit atheism, resonates and has staying power. Something wicked this way comes describes how the joy of the Lord is our strength, and all the flesh, the world, and the devil can do when we rely on our strength is get out of dodge. This concludes Episode 9 of Sanctifying Story. Give us five stars on Apple or Google Podcasts, and give us a follow wherever you listen to the Life Given Radio or join the Life Given Radio conversation group on Facebook to become more involved in the Life Given Radio. Until next time, read Something Wicked This Way Comes, read Bradbury, or watch Collision, or read How to Be an Atheist, a book I cannot recommend enough. Keep on reading, and thanks for listening to Sanctifying Stories.